Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up for today. Today's guest is a thought leader for how people and organizations introduce, manage, and embrace change. He's well-versed in 17 change management models, which I'm really interested to explore a little bit more in today's show. He's currently the Global IS Change Management Leader at the Lubrizol Corporation. Please welcome Alvin Hagen. Hello, Alvin. Hello, how's it? How are you doing today? Really well. Really appreciate you carving out some time today and uh, looking forward to uh, learning from your experience and wisdom. Thank you. And before we start, I just wanted to say that everything that I say is going to be on behalf of myself and not of the Lubrizol Corporation or Berkshire Hathaway. Understood. Understood. That's great and fantastic. And really, it's you that we want to learn from. You're the one with the wisdom, and uh, you is the one. Uh, you're the one that we're excited to uh, to talk to you today. So, um, let me start and ask you the question, and the same way we always do when we start off the show is, what do you see as the biggest challenge facing the deskless and frontline workforce today? That's a very interesting question, Justin. You know, when you when I think about the frontline workforce. Uh, and also, especially when you talk about deskless workforce, too, I think is actually understanding what they are going through. I think that's the biggest challenge, because I think from people from the top level, they are so far up thinking about the corporate strategies that they're not thinking about what's going on in the operational area as much as they could be. And that's because of a myriad of reasons, right? It could be because of the fact that they're focusing on, you know, the ROI of the company, the strategy for five to six years. But at the same time, you have to think about change management in that piece. And the reason why you have to think about change is you don't want change to happen to you. You want it to happen with you, right? So how can you allow that to happen? You need to be able to bring and let people know that they're a part of the change as well at the beginning of the stage rather than at the end. I think that is fantastic. And I, I love that you you started off with uh, don't want change to happen to you, but with you. And I think that's so important that we look yeah. at these transformational initiatives, not as something that we're doing to people, but that we are doing these things alongside one another as colleagues in the organization. And um, I think that's a, a really important way to look at it. So let's give the audience uh, a little bit of an, an understanding about you and your background and um, and how you uh, came into the role that you're in today. I, I really remember when our on our prep call, digging back into some of your history and uh, really being fascinated about some of the roles that you've had. So why don't you take us back and, and tell us a little bit about uh, that journey and some of the important milestones along the way? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you for that. I think when you think about my journey so far, uh, actually, when I think about change, it goes back to high school, believe it or not. Uh, for me, uh, when I was in high school, I played basketball. Uh, I'm an avid basketball person. But uh, I also, when I was playing basketball, many people didn't know this, but I also worked at Wendy's at the same time. Uh, and so I did this kind of on the weekends whenever I had time availability. So imagine 
you know, I'm shooting a basketball, but at the same time, I'm actually flipping burgers, right? But one of the things that's really important was the fact that I noticed something very quickly is that there were all kinds of things that were happening from a leadership perspective. And this is back in the day, right? So this, I'm sure now they're doing things in a better fashion. But at the time, we would get noticed like a day, not even a day's notice of something that was changing, right? And as a cook, which is what I was, I was the cook who made all like the, the chili, the burgers and stuff. It would be that minute that someone would say, hey, we got a change going on. We need to change out this stuff because we have a new thing coming in. And to my, my knowledge and to my thoughts, I was like, how could we do this differently? How could we do it more innovatively, right? To a point where it's not just at that last moment that I have to find out about that change, right? Uh, and so in my head, it was already starting to think about that. But I started witnessing that also uh, when I was in college because I did a co-op with uh, a company and it was more so manufacturing. And so in manufacturing, I saw changes that were going on, especially on the line, right? So you're actually working the line and doing those things. And I was with Dana Corporation. Uh, and with that, I realized there, there was more opportunity, more opportunity to uh, impact the front line to make sure that they had awareness of the changes that are going on. And that speaks to uh, one of the change management models that I know, which is the ADCAR, right? So ProSci ADCAR, which is awareness, desire, ability, and reinforcement, right? How do you let, allow people to be aware of the change that's going to occur so that they do not become unsafe, right? And that's very important. So especially when you're dealing with a factory, because you can have your hand cut off, you can have fingers cut off, those things could happen. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so you want to make sure you're able to do that in a meaningful way. And most importantly, you want to be able to sustain it over time so that anytime it comes up again, you already know the protocol going forward. Now, I, I want to get deeper into your, your current past too, but before we do that, I, I want to stop as we're going along this journey because you've said something that I, I think is kind of interesting. You know, as a teenager, you seem to be more aware. I mean, I, man, I had jobs like that too. I worked in a grocery store when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, and uh, I, I definitely don't think I was thinking as strategically about things that were happening upstream from the change, you know? definitely on the receiving end of some of those changes. Um, and I might've been thinking about how they impact me, but I don't think I was thinking far enough ahead to, about how they could be changed. What, what do you think it was about you and your personality or what else you were exposed to that was causing you to think differently about those circumstances? Really good question. I think for me, uh, I have to give that bear to my mother and my father. Um, my father is a Marine Corps uh, Purple Heart veteran, right? And so uh, believe it or not, growing up, he had me like ironing his jeans like early in the morning, right? So he kind of set the tone of a process, right? So he kind of said, hey, uh, you kind of let me know that prior preparation prevents poor performance early in life, right? So once you have something like that, and you, you kind of, your mind starts thinking differently, right? So uh, and my mother, who worked at Walmart at the time, she uh, basically, she was also more so acclimated into regards to people, right? Because that's where she was a customer service manager. So really she had to deal with people every day. And so getting to see those both interactions, right? Seeing my father work in the factory and do those things at the front line, but also seeing my mother interact with people every day, that gave me the opportunity to be able to see things in a different light. And so I thank them for that. Uh, I think they allowed me to be able to do that in a great way. Well, I think that if you think about those two backgrounds from your your mom and your dad, you know, with dad being the, the process one that kind of put the process part in your mind and then mom, perhaps uh, introducing you to the importance of, you know, working with people and, and empathy for people and stuff like that. Like that's, 
perhaps the perfect combination for change management, right? Is a little bit of process, <laughs> a little bit of people and, right. and bringing those things together into a single personality. That's, that's pretty interesting. And it's, it's, I think even more interesting that you were seeing and thinking along these lines at a pretty early stage in your life. Yeah. And also I would say that mother always gave me books, see all these books behind me. Right. So I'm always an avid reader. And so she started that early and wanted me to be uh, not just uh, a great reader, but also be knowledgeable. And when you're knowledgeable, you're also able to share knowledge. Uh, And so something that I do till this day is continue to provide knowledge and continue to learn going forward. Okay. Well, this, so I interrupted you kind of telling your journey. So we still have a gap between uh, your younger years and kind of where you uh, ended up now. So fill that, fill that in for us. Yeah. So sure. So I think we stopped off where I was actually, you know, at Dana Corporation in college and doing those things. And then uh, also while I was in college, I did some other jobs, like some work study jobs and stuff while I was in college. Uh, And I was able to deal with a lot of people still, right? So I was doing like information desk and doing things such as like, billiards. Now, these might seem like small jobs, even cutting hair, right? So uh, you think these are like small jobs, but at the same time, you're getting to know people more and more, right? And you get to understand how there's different types of people, right? And so for me, it was more communications. I still, at the time, I didn't know what change management was, but I knew people. I knew how to be able to uh, look at behaviors, right? Like I could sense that, like when someone comes to the information desk and they say, and they have this look of like, they have a question, right? I'm able to look at that and say, how can I help you, right? And just try, and then they come up to me, I was like, hey, sure. Uh, and, you know, we have a little bit of banter and then next thing you know, we're going on and then I'm telling them where they should go to. So I think those things help me. Uh, and then when I eventually, when I graduated, which uh, from the illustrious Western Kentucky University, I went to uh, Dell Computer and I went into sales because Sales was something that I was really interested in. I actually have a marketing minor, uh, excuse me, major and a minor in sales. It's actually a, a sales marketing kind of uh, program. And so uh, it was really, you know, talking to people, using that capability, right? Uh, and uh, I was actually doing very well there. But I realized uh, after a couple of years that, you know, I wanted to do something different. Uh, it was something that was really near and dear to me. One of the biggest things is that I'm a first-generation student. And so as a first-generation student, I wanted to go back to school and get my MBA. Uh, and, and I did that because of the fact that I have two brothers as well. And so I wanted to show them that, hey, they could do that too, right? And so uh, as the older brother, I decided to go out on that leap of faith and decided to go to Troy University, uh, which is in Alabama. And then I was there and I was actually able to learn a lot of great things. And actually, most importantly, I got to learn about myself, which was truly uh, a gift, right, to be able to you know, understand about the business, the way the world works, and then to actually get into, uh, you know, really where I want to be. And so I made that focus. And then I made that leap of faith to go to USA after that, which, of course, that's where I was able to kind of migrate in different things. And most importantly, I got into the world of change management. And guess what? What was really important about that is that I remember it till this day. A lady that I know um, was able, she presented uh, on the topic of change management and it clicked to me like a light bulb switch. It was just like, that's what I'm supposed to do. Like I knew it. Every, when yeah. I heard her after she talked about the VUCA world, I was hooked and I knew then that was my call. I knew that. And so uh, once, and I actually thanked her uh, later on uh, for that uh, because I always believe in gratitude. 
but it was something that really kind of engaged me to be able to say, hey, how do we help people succeed? Because I believe my job is to create conditions for people to succeed by providing them a social license to operate. And so that's what I decided that I wanted to do for my career. So let's talk about that. What do you mean by a social license to operate? Talk us through that. So when you think about change management, um, one of the things is, is that, you, as we talked about earlier, uh, you want to have change happen with you and not to you. So when you go into different areas and you're doing like a stakeholder analysis or those things, you want to be able to say, hey, you know what? We want to be able to do this change, but we need to have you along the journey with us, right? And I think many times what happens is many times, uh, you know, leaders may say, oh, we're just going to do this. And then it just happens. And then they have no awareness. So it has to be delayed, right? But when you get the social license to operate, it's an agreement there that says, hey, you decided and I decided that we're both going to be able to do this together. And I think that creates a better relationship. And also it creates better organizational performance. And there's a trust there, right? Um, and then it also goes up to the organizational strategies going forward. And so for me, I think it's a really great opportunity to kind of co collaborate together and also be able to say, um, this is not just about you or about me. It's about we. Yeah. Well, when you when we started off and I asked you the big question about the big challenge facing the deskless workforce today, you said understanding what they're going through and, and not having maybe enough, um, you know, firsthand knowledge of, of what's going on out of the front lines. And so when you, when you think about it, the, the way that you're describing it now, how do we bridge that gap? Like what, what would the frontline workers be saying is the biggest challenge? Do, do they see it the same way? Are they frustrated that other people in the organization don't get them, don't understand their job? I think so. I, I would, to be honest, I think so. I think the way you bridge that gap is actually try to live a day and a life in their shoes. Uh, one thing that I did actually when I first joined the results actually do a walk, uh, which is uh, I actually had the overalls on, went into the plant, and uh, had a great experience talking to them one on one, having shaking their you know shaking hands. Of course, you know, had my mask on because of COVID and all those things. But it was able. But because of that, they felt that like I heard them. And also for me, it was great because now I can be able to say I've had conversations with them. I know what their communication devices are. I know exactly what training that they need. And maybe they may not be able to receive an email because they're actually working on the line, right? And so there might, they may not do that. It might be a conversation with their foreman. It might be a conversation with someone who is their immediate manager or something of that nature. And so that is providing that social license to operate is actually gaining that trust by actually talking to them and understanding what their needs are and how we can best fit them. And I think that is really the servant leadership model that we have. Uh, is, is you can be a servant leader to individuals on the front line, then you can be a better, greater leader above because now you're considering not just the people who are in the offices sitting back, but also the people who are actually doing the hard work every single, not saying that the people aren't doing hard work up there, but yeah. people who are doing the manual labor and the front lines as well. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. You, you used the word trust a few times today, which it, it no longer surprises me on this podcast because I think a lot of folks that are as sensitive to the needs of, of the cultural impact, um, you know, mention trust a lot. You said something to me in, in our um, initial conversation that really stuck with me and, and it was kind of about 
the evolution of the culture inside the organization. Do you, do you want to share the, the quote that you said to me? Yeah, we were talking about in regards to what good change is. And I remember a saying that may saying that good change to me personally, this is just Alvin's world of looking at things, is when you barely know it exists, that's good change. And I think that's the evolution of culture in itself, right? Because I think many times it's like people say, oh, we're going to do some change. Let's get some change management on that. When the leaders stop saying, let's do some change management on it, and they say that, okay, it's already, it's basically like normal business cycle, what they do, that's good change to me. Yeah. And, that's, uh, and that's a challenge, right? Because that is something that you have to continuously work on every day. Uh, it's something that you have to make sure you have governance models. You got to make sure that you have uh, people all in, bought in, and you also have to train people who may not know what change management means, right? So you have to make sure of that. But if you can do that, you can get to that net zero, I like to call it then that will be amazing. Yeah. I, I really like the, the way that you've described that. And, and I think you said something that I've heard on a bunch of other uh, podcast interviews, but you said it very succinctly that, you know, you know, it's effective when people stop talking about it as if it's some add on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's really important, but that's a part of the culture in the organization. And I think that's something that maybe, some of the companies that I come across may still be in earlier phases of building out that culture. I think in some cases, they're still looking at change management as like a topping on their Froyo, something <laughs> that you add on top. Um, they haven't quite gotten into the part yet where it's just fully integrated in the business, but they, they aspire to be. I think, you know, certainly on this podcast, we've had guests and every single guest that we've had on here has been an evangelist for change management. It's maybe part of the reason they were inspired to come and join us in the conversation. And so for those folks, I know they get it. They may just be at various degrees of engagement with the rest of the organization about taking it on more holistically and, and about engaging leadership to the level that, that would be required to reach that, that perfect state. Yeah. You know, I think most people, you know, they say change is hard. I've heard that a lot. People say change is hard, but I kind of realized that change, most people like change. And, you, and the reason why, because they like the change that jingles in their pockets, right? Yeah. So when you think about when people say that, and I, I say that not just as a joke, but to say that change is about perspective, right? So it's really about what is your perspective of it? When you have a perspective that is a, a positive intent, that you're actually doing something that's going to be noteworthy, that is something where you start seeing people being bought in. You start saying, hey, let's get everybody socialized around this change. This is a yeah. transformation that's going to be great for everyone, not just the one person. So yeah. very interesting as well. I, I love that. You know, we there's a lot of discussion these days about the future of work. And this was true before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic is just really accelerated this thought that the future is coming upon us faster than ever, meaning that some of these changes are very holistic and pervasive throughout, you know, our global economy here. I'm curious to get your take on what you think will be different for frontline workers as we think about the future of work. What's going to be changing for them and how does that impact change management strategy as we think about transformational initiatives that affect them? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think when you talk about change management uh, for the future of work, uh, I think about strategies that are 
more localized. I call it change localization, uh, meaning that you're looking at changes that are not just based off of just one initiative that everybody has to do the same thing standardly, but actually more succinct and within their particular area, right? And so when you think about it, uh, change management, you're saying, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, okay, supply chain does this, da, da, da. But no, we're talking about more like if you're from a global perspective, what type of country you're in, right? And you get, there's Portuguese, maybe you're in uh, South America, Portuguese, you, you got that language. And then you also have, you know, there's um, many other languages like English. And then those things have to be considered along with change, right? Because now you're looking at something that is more cultural in nature, right? And so how do you also embed the cultural elements that may be included from that? So when I think of future of work, uh, of course, you know, from the things about working from home and all those things, that's important, but also taking in the culture in regards to where they are from, where they live, that's very important too. And I think that's going to really kind of uh, revolutionize change management going forward because I think people in the meantime, in, in the previous times, did not think about that. They just thought more so about, hey, we're going to roll out this change and that's it. Now they're saying, okay, we now we got to take in consideration uh, you know what, Christmas is different than the U.S. than it is in uh, the uh, U.K., right? Uh, or, you know, so how do we make sure that we're aligning towards that, right? Uh, and it's also talking about resource allocation in a way that has maybe never been thought of, right? So now you have to separate what the resources look like from, you know, working in the office, from working from home, from, you know, hybrid approach. All that has to be considered. So... Uh, it is a new day and age, but it's exciting though, right, Justin? Oh, I mean, it's exciting to me. I, I certainly think it is. I'm a sucker for change. Um, I get bored with status quo. So I, I think that, uh, if, I don't know if there's some way to measure somebody's uh, you know, willingness to change just generally as a personality trait, but I definitely would be on on one extreme and, and willing to, uh, to change. But I, I think what I've also learned from guests, you included, is that all of the people that are on the receiving end of change aren't necessarily equally uh, looking forward <laughs> to that change, right? Yeah. And um, so when you talk about localization, you know, my, the first thought that went into my mind, when I think about localization, I often think about, you know, language translations and stuff like yeah. that from a software standpoint, right? That's what we think of in the software business, that localization would translate English to whatever other language. Um, but when you're talking about localization, you're talking about far beyond just language, like that's table stakes that you would do translations, right? But it's it's also about what are the other things that aren't necessarily just uh, language, right? What are the other things about their culture? Yeah, it's about customs. It's, you know, it's about all those different things. Like you said, language is a part of it, but it's about like even customs. When you can be able to customize your change, to the point where you now are ingrained into the culture, that's beautiful, right? That's a beautiful type of change because now it says, I get you. Yeah. I understand you very well. And so I'm going to be able to now do changes that are, are going to really make sense to you because I get your culture and I understand what you, you're going through and those things, whatever is going on, your, if you have any holidays, I know that, right? And so that to me, is uh, the beauty of change when it's done very well. Yeah. When you think about digital transformation initiatives, specifically those that relate to frontline workers, do you believe that there should be different strategies and tactics employed for 
the men and women on the front lines? Or how, how do you think about those differences that apply to the men and women that aren't sitting behind a desktop computer uh, for most of their time? I mean, this is really a big part of what our show is about. And I'm, I'm curious to get your, your take on that. Well, the first thing that I usually do from a change perspective, especially when you're thinking about frontline and just overall digital transformation strategy, is a needs assessment. Really, you have to, before you decide to say, hey, I want to go do this, let's do a needs assessment to see where they are at current state, right? So let's understand what current state is for them, right? And what people, what the processes is, technology, all that needs to be understood, right? What are some of the, you know, the the groans that they're having, right? Some of the things that they're just kind of saying, hey, this is not working, right? And then be able to report that back to say, how do we prioritize this, right? From a uh, perspective of the strategy. Now, once we have that prioritization set up, then we can start talking about, okay, let's, uh, let's distribute these changes out in a, uh, in a manner that makes sense. Um, but I, I usually go with taking that needs assessment, look, doing it like a gap analysis to see where those gaps are. Uh, and getting that information. I think without a needs assessment, then you're really not doing the uh, due diligence regarding change because you're not really understanding what the needs are. And so you're going to build something to the front line that they don't even need. <laughs> so they're going to say, hey, why did you build this? It makes no sense, right? Yeah. But if communicating with them and asking the questions and they're, now they're feeling they're being heard and you're providing also a word that I usually like to use, psychological safety, right? Mm-hmm. You provide psychological safety to say, hey, we're asking these questions because we want to make sure that we're making you and your life better, right? Uh, if you're doing that for the front lines, then you're seeing some success towards the end. And again, I like to use the five Ps, prior preparation prevents poor performance. I love that. Let me let me go back to the uh, the safety piece. What What's an example of not to focus on the negative, but what's an example of psychological unsafe circumstances? Well, it, it could be as simple as uh, being. Um, this hasn't happened to me, but you can have a you can have a boss who doesn't listen to what you have to say when you bring up issues. That could be a way of unpsychologically safe because of the fact that uh, he's not listening, so that's not giving you the uh, feeling that you're able to come to him when there's issues, right? Uh, psychological safety is also could be addressed uh, from even from a female perspective, right? Sometimes where you may see from a leadership perspective that there's all men uh, and there's no one that looks like you onto that. And so that could make you feel that you have um, uh, got the word, but the, you don't feel as if you can do that, what they're doing, because right. the fact that you don't see no one that looks just like you. Yeah. So there's many different avenues where you can go from psychological safety. Uh, and, but those are some of the detriments that could happen as well. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think a, another thing that came to my mind when you said that was that I think there is, I, I think it's disproportionately large with frontline workers, but I don't have any data to back that up. It's just more of a gut feeling that I think a lot of the men and women on the front lines that I've interacted with have insecurities about technology and about um, the intent of the technology, how it's used to track them. Uh, if it's being used to track them, they assume kind of the worst. Um, I, I, I've sensed some vulnerabilities, insecurities about them not wanting to admit that they don't know how to use things mm-hmm. in front of their peers, right? So they've been a little bit hesitant to ask for help when they probably needed help. 
Right. Have you seen any of those types of things as you've been through your journey? You know, personally myself, I think I was one of those people, right? So okay. sometimes uh, you feel as if that you don't, you don't want to show that you're not able to do what you needed to do because the fact that you think that someone uh, is going to say that, oh, that person is not good enough, right? And that was yeah. early in my career, right? And uh, I realized you have to realize that as a manager, you have to see that and actually have the conversation to say, hey, let me help you along the journey. Let me provide you some tools and some training that will be able to help you with that. Now, also, you have to provide a, a safe space to talk too, right? So if you're not providing that safe space to say, hey, what's on your mind, Jim? Right. Tell me a little bit about that. Or Beth, tell me what's going on, right? Or when you're in meetings and the person says, you know, they're talking and you're just like, Great job. You you tell you give them a great job right there in the meeting in front of everybody else. Like this is this is Alvin. He's going to be working on this blah blah blah. You are providing him that license to operate again, right? So it's like, hey, I trust Alvin's going to take care of that. Then you feel empowered, right? Because you're like, okay, my boss has my back. I know yeah. he's going to do that, and so that's really important to me. Uh, and that's what I try to do for my teams as well. That's good. Um, I'd like to just maybe hear from you an example of a circumstance when change management, the, the approach that you took or the team that you were on took, maybe didn't go quite as planned. Maybe you didn't get the results that you were expecting. Anything come to mind? You know, when I think about change management, I think uh, the leadership sets the tone of the organization, right? And I believe for me, when change management doesn't go so well, it's more so of the fact that do you not have the buy-in from leadership, right? And the question is, is does leadership feel uh, that they need to communicate to everyone else? And I would say early in my career, I would say that first starting off in change management, um, I did not, you know, when people thought change management was just communications, <laughs> and a lot of people probably, you probably heard this many times, they didn't really think that, oh, they was like, hey, we just communicated out and that's it. Um, and I think that was a failure to me, right? To me, I think when, when, you're, when people say to you that, you know, it's just communication, change management is way more than just communication. There's training, there's strategy, there's those things as well. And so for me, I would say, uh, you know, operating under that realm of, and when I was first starting change management, because that's what it was told to me. It was more of, Oh, you know, it's, you send out these communications and all those things. I think change management is more than that. Uh, and I've learned over the years, as you saw, I talked about the certifications and things like that, is that if change is empowering people. It's allowing people to, and if you're empowering people, you're providing coaching. You're providing, like you said, the communication. That's a part of it. But you're also providing some strategies. You're also, you're, you're the listening ear, right? Sometimes you just need to listen, right, and have conversations. Other times you need to create a framework. Right. So they have able people to see that sometimes it's about the governance model that needs to be created so that you govern. it. Sometimes it's also about uh, creating the organizational structure, getting those things right. Or it could be about the IT systems. Right. It's looking at that from that perspective and saying, OK, we're going through a huge uh, transformation from that perspective or digital, all those things. And so uh, having that, uh, I would say, call it uh, that look, that small view of change would be, I would say, would have been one of my detriments as well at the time. 
Yeah, I think that's actually a good point. And, and something funny about what you said to me is that I'm the opposite maybe of the example that you talked about, right? In, in my day job, I lead a business that has a training platform. And so I've tended to look at this uh, problem, you know, the, the challenge of digital transformation um, with a bias toward training as the view. And I think what I've learned from being the host of this podcast from the amazing guests that we've had is that there are so many other things before and after. I mean, in the ag car model specifically, right? There are so many things before and after the training piece that are important. And that's, it's actually been really informative for me to, to have these conversations with folks like you, because it's made me realize that from a technology standpoint, our platform has an opportunity to play a role beyond just training. Right. Um, it's also made me kind of rethink of some of the projects that I've been a part of where I think there hasn't been enough emphasis on change management and it's been lacking in the communication aspects, right? And um, and on the follow-up, all of the stuff that should be happening correctly after training. So I, I think I've been so excited to have learned from folks like you just about you can't look at any one of the components of ADCAR or any of the other kind of frameworks here, just in any individual silo, you have to look at it in totality across, you know, holistically across the entire framework and say, we've got to cover all of these bases. Otherwise we're sabotaging our success. Exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I am curious since we talked about training and since I've acknowledged that I have a bias in that space, I'm, I'm curious to, to get your take on what you think the, the role of training is in change management and kind of how that fits. And, and if you've learned any best practices around delivering training, particularly to the men and women on the front lines. Yeah, I think training is super important in regards to change management. It's kind of like the yin and the yang, right? You mm -hmm. have, if you're going to do any type of change, people need to be informed of that change, but they also need to be able to be trained on that change. Now, one of the things that I say would say that really speaks out to me as uh, a big uh, thought of regard around training is measurement of success, right? So how do you measure the success of the training that has happened? Many times what I've seen in the past is people do a training and then they say, okay, we got them trained, right? But in the new model of change, as you go forward, you want to see the aptitude of those individuals. You want to say, okay, now we have, you know, 80% of the people trained, they all answered, you know, eight out of 10 questions correct. The 80% are knowledgeable of their information. Now that type of data is great data because that data lets you know, okay, people are literate in regards to the change that's going on, right? Because they have that information. So for me, that is something that I think is really important is to be able to measure the success of that training. Not only that, uh, I think it also allows people to start saying, okay, now that I know they're informed, I can actually be able to report this back to leadership and say, okay, like here's how, where we are in the workforce going forward. Yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic. I think having a, a way to, to measure training is something that we spend a lot of time on in, in my day job. And, and also we spent a lot of time talking about that on the, the podcast here, because we can't just deliver training in, in any modality, in any multimedia format, whatever you may be using and expect just that everybody's going to have absorbed that at hundred percent. And that really goes to, you know, terminology I've heard a lot from change management pros about really assessing the readiness yes. uh, of, of that adoption in the field. And, um, so I, I think that it just makes perfect sense. And it's, it's some of the stuff that just, and we've talked about this a bunch too. It, it sounds obvious 
Yeah. And it's not a complicated thing to think about. <laughs> it's just that it's not necessarily easy to plan and deliver. Right. Yeah. So it's simple, but not easy. I also like to say too, as well, is that, you know, instead of the old school long trainings where everybody had to be a part of that, you know, now it's like micro learnings is very important, right? Having these micro learning bites where you might do something for maybe, you know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, it could be, and it's, it's multi-dimensional, right? So it could be, uh, it doesn't have to just be in person all the time, right? It can actually be on your phone. It could be on, as a mobile technologist, you would know that, right? Yeah. So you got to think about that. Or it could be something where it's on, you know, kind of like a, uh, a CEL or uh, using terminologies, those things like that. But you can look at those things differently and have different types of training, which also creates engagement, right? Because now yeah. you're looking at all different avenues of that going forward. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, some other feedback that we had from, uh, you know, anytime we can, we reach out to end users, the, the frontline workers themselves, so that we can really learn from them. It's yes. amazing the insights that you get when you actually just ask the people that are affected exactly. uh, some, some for, for some honest feedback. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is some feedback we got this week was uh, these individuals felt like they were being asked to train on too many things mm. that weren't immediately relevant to them. And it was interesting. Uh, so we, we went back and we kind of reviewed the curriculum and, and we were thinking back to the requirements that had been requested uh, of us by the customer. And, you know, the leadership had this opinion that everybody needs to know everything. <laughs> and what we, the feedback that we got from the users is that that was overwhelming. They felt mm -hmm. like it was a waste of their time. Um, and they, they actually became frustrated by that. Yep. And so it really started to beg the question, did we actually hurt the effectiveness of that program in that moment by trying to ask them to bite off and chew too much at one time mm -hmm. um, and perhaps align the relevance to them at the moment? Yep. Uh, another colleague of ours gave me the expression that I love, minimum viable uh, proficiency, right? Mm -hmm. we, we, they don't have to become an expert in everything right out of the gate, but we can reach a minimum viable proficiency so that we can send them out in the field and they can go get their job done and then make available to them the other information that they need that they can learn in the flow of work when it's appropriate, right? And so I, that, that was really impactful to me. I, I thought it was interesting that the users had such strong opinions about that and that they felt that their time was being wasted and were certainly not going to make many new friends in the field, you know, if, if we're giving them work that they just feel is wasteful and not relevant to their job. And, you know, that's really interesting, Justin, because when I think about that, uh, it also, uh, I like to use the word of the Fisher price model of training, right? It should be simple, right? But the only way it can be simple is if you ask the question, right? Yep. Because if you don't ask the question to the front line, then you're not, you don't really understand them. You don't understand right. what they do. And so that causes something what I like to call the uh, change fatigue, right? So it's mm -hmm. like you have all this information and it's all coming to you all at once and you don't really need all that information. Now I'm feeling a little bit distrustful of you because you're throwing stuff at me that doesn't really mm -hmm. pertain to me. And so that, that's a great opportunity, a great thought by them too as well. Thanks for well, sharing. And, and I think one of the reasons that that approach has had a tendency to take place is that when we get frontline workers out of the field, mm -hmm. we've got them for a very short window. And we feel like, you know, 
we we got to give him everything we've got in this one chance because we've taken him out of the field for a half day to go through this training and in you know traditional instructor led training and stuff like that. Right. So we got to tell him everything. We get one chance to do this right. We're going to tell him everything. And um, you know now with the modern tools that are available and access to information on the fly and like you said access to information from a smartphone or tablet or other devices that they're using in the field, we shouldn't feel. Like we have to deliver all of that information at one time. In fact, you mentioned micro learning before. I think that's a, a great part of this strategy, which is that by breaking down the content into smaller bite-sized chunks, we don't have to feel compelled to deliver everything at once. We do have to educate them and tell them when and where they can get information that they need when they're out in the field so that when they are in the flow of work and when they do need that information that they can be resourceful and, and go get that information. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things about micro that's really great is the fact that you don't have to use a lot of resources for it. After a while, right. especially when you start adopting technology with it, you know, that is something that is available to anyone at any time. So that creates that sustainment. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, man, we're already uh, coming up towards the end of the show, but I, I do want to ask you what contribution are you most proud of as it relates to change management? And I'd, I'd love for you to give us an example that's specific to any interactions you've had with the men and women on the front lines. Interesting. What contribution? I think for me, uh, the most proud of contribution from a change management perspective is to hear someone from the front lines tell me that you get it. And, you know, for me, that was really important because while I told you I was actually on, you know, with the overalls on, with the hard hat, got the glasses on, doing those things. And uh, there was in the individual who was driving me to the area. He said that, you know, he said, this is good for, he said, this is good. He said, because we need people like you to be able to understand what we go through. And I always remember him. I mean, because of the fact that, you know, that was a, you know, at the time you think, oh, he's, he's just talking just to talk, but no. It, it made me think about operations and resources even more because I said to myself, if there's any time we go to operations, I need to make sure that I get the voice of the customer. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure that I understand what they're going through and allow them to be at the party, right? And not just yeah. over, not just at the party, but at the table, right? Uh, yeah. So let's give them at the seat of, just provide them a seat at the table so we can have a conversation. And so I think I'm proud of that, but I'm also a proud of the change uh, not just from a, you know, from a frontline perspective, but I'm also proud about the change even for myself, uh, because I believe that, you know, change goes outside the walls of just corporate America. It goes on to the change in regards to life in general. And those things. So making effective changes, uh, you know, even in my personal life or uh, me and my family is fairly important to me. And I think uh, it's benefited me, my wife, and my daughter in a great uh, way as well. Yeah. I see you have some pictures of some men up on the wall behind you that sure. uh, were, were agents of change uh, in yes. a very different way and definitely outside the, the role of corporate America. You want to pick any one of those guys and, uh, and tell us what impact it's had? Because yeah. our audience may be listening in audio only and they may not be seeing these pictures right now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, one, of course, uh, we talk about Dr. Martin. Uh, of course, he's a great agent of change. Uh, people have heard him, but, you know, one of the movements that I really enjoyed that he's also about the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which was a huge change in regards to, you know, basically talking about the welfare and the economics of individuals. Uh, and, you know, to have those type of movements, especially in the civil rights area, 
that is a uh, that's a challenging way of going about it, right? You have to be able to uh, do something, especially when Vietnam was going on. You have to do it in a way where you, when people most likely would not really agree with you. Sometimes change is like that, right? Where people are not agreeing, they're not saying they they think it's not really worth it, and he actually had to take the ultimate sacrifice regarding that. Uh, and so um, I I look to him, but I look to also these other leaders as well because they all have had dramatic changes. But also on my wall here is Nelson Mandela too as well. And so that's one of the things that uh, he's behind me. Uh, and uh, he was a great leader as well. And I enjoyed the change, things that he said. And I think one of the things he said was that uh, the change is an end result of all true learning. And I think that's really important, right? So when you think about change, um, think about the learning that you get along the way, because that learning is what is essential and it matters the most. Yeah. And I, I think that's a fantastic place for us to wrap this up. I, I want to say, you know, to, to your point about those tremendous men in history that you were just describing that, um, you know, if it was easy and if everybody wanted to do it and if everybody was on board, then you wouldn't need people like that and you wouldn't need people like you and all of the listeners here that are agents for change. And, and of course, we're talking about completely different levels of change, right? Yeah. Rolling out rolling out new technology in a corporation is very different from trying to change the trajectory of a society, right? Absolutely. But but I think that the common themes there that I'm so glad you were able to bring up is that it's it's the same thing. If if everybody on the receiving end was just ready and willing and able, then we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But the truth <laughs> is <laughs> they're not. For one right. reason or another, humans don't necessarily just adapt to change particularly well. Uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so it does take some some real strategy and and some really smart tactics and, and leadership to your point uh, to make that be effective. So I really appreciate you sharing those stories with us today. And um, thank you for uh, taking the time. Always, Justin. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great rest of your day. You as well. So to our audience, we are going to wrap up the show right there, but um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you have as well. Um, if you have, please share and rate the podcast. Uh, as you hear us say for every episode, five-star ratings do help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. Reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Please visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. And we'd love to have you on the next episode. Alvin, thanks again for your time, man. All right. Thank you. Have a great right. day. You too.